1: Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James, and with me this week is Anne-Marie, Emmett and Mike from the My Wall Street Analyst Teams. Today, we're talking about the recent AMC short squeeze and how this is becoming the new normal for the market, By Etsy's acquisition of Depop is great news for investors, and we pitched two recently floated companies that we're very excited by. So guys, before we started recording today, I was reading an article in the New York Times which says that adults in Washington State will be able to get a free marijuana joint when they receive a COVID-19 jab as part of their Joints for Jabs initiative to try and get more people vaccinated. Uh, I wanted to ask you guys, if we were having a problem here in Ireland with getting people vaccinated, what would you offer people as as compensation for taking the jab?
2: I mean, it's not a question, it's obviously pints. (laughs) (laughs) Behind the bar, throw your arm over (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
3: <laughs> so you could guarantee everyone would go for it if it was mandatory that you could only get pints if you
1: had the vaccine Well what they really need to start doing is not letting you into the pub if you don't have your vaccine Which is the kind of old vaccine passport um, idea I suppose What do you think Henry? marie Emmett and Mike were fairly emphatic with pints Do you have anything more profound?
0: I mean, I think a chicken fillet roll would be pretty, oh, yeah. pretty good. Yeah. You know, if you yeah. do if you do the kind of, if you line everybody up outside the pub and they get vaccinated on the way in and then on the way out, they also get a chicken fillet roll. Just kind of top off the night for everyone. I think that would be quite good. <laughs>
1: they need to put you in charge of the roll out here. Henry. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I actually have a flight book to go to Washington next week. So I'll just, see you guys Just pure like... coincidence, is it? Yeah. I'll see you in like six weeks
1: or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of all of the things that have been happening this year, it feels like we've gone back in time recently with AMC in the news once again. The cinemas chain stock has more than doubled in the last two weeks thanks to a new short squeeze brought on by the so-called meme stock craze fueled by online chat forums like Wall Street Bets. Um, this means now that since the start of this year, AMC stock has appreciated by more than 2,600%. Just leave that (laughs) lie with you there for a moment. Um, Of course, AMC are happy enough with this attention it's getting. And the company even went ahead and sold an extra 20 million shares last week, taking advantage of this massively inflated valuation. Emmett, on an episode of this podcast back in January, you might remember that you pitched AMC as your red hot contrarian pitch. At that time, they were floating at about $3 a share. So how is that crystal ball working? Did you ever imagine it turning out (laughs) quite like this?
3: No, actually I, I felt it was undervalued at the time because they had a new credit facility and I figured they were going to make it through to now when the doors of cinemas would swing open as they have done and the business would be recapitalized through op- operating activities. I did not foresee a short squeeze, but I do think I should get a prize for the best call ever made <laughs> on the <a laughs> podcast irrespective of the fact that Look played a huge role. But yeah, it's up, whatever, 30, twenty fold since that episode so yeah. it is it's it's pretty amazing but i i
1: i do think that
3: yeah i'd like that as my epitaph he called amc a two bucks a shot
1: i was actually i was listening back to the episode in preparation for this episode and i think you preface your pitch by saying well they went up 30 percent yesterday so we kind of might have missed the, the boat on this one <laughs> which uh really? which was a bit of an understatement how um, quaint
2: yeah, I, don't, exactly. I don't believe Emmett I think he's on Wall Street bets every night yeah <laughs> Must lover 420 posted on all the boards yeah exactly
3: you caught me
1: Well, of course, speaking of AMC, you know, obviously the the stock or the run they've been on recently is unprecedented. But of course, cinemas are reopening across the world as vaccination efforts ramp up. And, you know, roughly 75% of North American theaters are estimated to have been reopened already. And Marie, we were talking about this before the podcast. Do you think there's an actual investment thesis underneath all of this craziness and market manipulation that AMC might be becoming a good investment opportunity again?
0: Um, I think like no, because obviously like it's it's stock prices run up to incredibly high. But what was interesting, what Emmett just said is like when he pitched it in whatever, January, he was like, but on fundamentals at the time, at $2 a share, the company was undervalued. And you see that repeatedly with kind of all of these meme stocks right at the center of kind of this controversy and this explosion is always like one little nugget of truth of at some point, this stock was undervalued. It was exactly the same with GameStop. And that's why Michael Burry pitched it in like September of 2019, because naysayers to GameStop, and in truth, like some of them are probably right. Like e-commerce is probably going to eventually obliterate GameStop and even the fact that gaming is moving more and more towards cloud-based games. There's there's really no reason that there needs to be a physical infrastructure selling video games any longer. But Michael Burry went and looked at their financials and the stock price had been pushed so low by short sellers that yeah. GameStop had enough cash in hand that they could pay for the entirety of the market cap of the stock and still have cash left over. And obviously, like that means the stock was undervalued. But then I think that little nugget of truth Kind of snowballed and became so viral online and people failed to realize, oh, Michael Burry said this in September of 2019. And when he sold his shares in Q3 of 2020, he only made, I think, like four times his investment or something like that because the stock had been pushed up to, I think, about $15 a share. And it was that thing of, but people still thought the thesis was valid. Oh, GameStop is undervalued. Not at $15 a share, it wasn't. Yeah. And so I think that's very interesting to watch these stocks kind of have one little idea right at the center of them of, oh, they're undervalued. And I think if we were living in a different time with maybe less social media, we would only have a couple people who maybe would have discovered GameStop and put money in. And they probably would have made a nice little sum, like four times your investment is really impressive over such a small period of time. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah but i think because then we added this element of wall street bets and kind of all these different social media aspects i think it just means that every high gets pushed so much higher and the volatility is is so much worse
1: yeah well you, you talked there about the kind of diver- the virality of these kind of short squeezes and that you know people might spot you know one or two nice little nuggets of of information in these companies and then it snowballs out of control and and this is you know this is something we talked about and mike we were talking about this too, is that it seems like these kind of events where you know these massive, prolonged short squeezes or, or buying of stocks or market manipulation fueled by the likes of Reddit and Wall Street Bets, they seem to be co- becoming more and more frequent. Do you think this is something the market and investors are going to have to contend with um, over and over again over the next few years?
2: Yeah, I think so. There's kind of never been more of an opportunity to tell a story, really. And every stock yeah. has a story. So... Anne-Marie was going on about GameStop and what Michael Burry saw. It's happening now with AMC and cinemas reopening. It's this ability to get your story out there to a wide audience. Wall Street Bets has 10 million followers, members, whatever. And so that ability for you to get the story out and then for it to grow legs and snowball and and go viral and end up, you're getting your aunt on the phone asking for stock tips and <laughs> whether she should buy game stuff and that's how it works it's kind of the catalyst the audience the story yeah and then the avalanche really
1: and i suppose the unfortunate thing then is the people who spotted that initial nugget of information or spotted a company is undersold they're well out of the game by the time those thousands of people are, are kind of left holding the bag um emmet over the last uh, kind of few days, another company I got caught up in this to some degree is Clover Health. This is a company that you're quite familiar with as even interested in the Horizon portfolio. Have you any concerns about these smaller cap companies getting caught up, even if the underlying investment thesis is quite good?
3: Yeah, I, I don't especially like it, James, because it's outside our, well, news and events are never inside our, our direct control. However, you can kind of assimilate stories and progress of a business in its own right yeah. as a stock analyst but with the meme stocks and uh, the effect that we've seen it's just not perfect but nobody ever went broke with a small profit so I'm not going to laugh in the face of a mechanism that if you're on the side the right side of luck you've made some money on but it's quite interesting because Clover, Clover's founder a guy called Vivek Garapalli, he actually started life as a day trader about 20 okay, years ago. Wow. Yeah, I know. And it kind of is, I think, fulfilling for him. <laughs> you know, destiny fulfilling for him that now the very company he co-founded, or founded rather, uh, is the subject of a short squeeze. So Clover is, I'm watching it very, very closely at the moment. And we're recording this show on Wednesday afternoon. It's going live on Friday. We don't really know what's going to happen in the next few exactly. days. But yeah. but but yet the stock is up somewhat like threefold in the last couple of weeks it might have more room to run but with a short squeeze you can't actually tell where is the top because mm. we're not talking about a business that's appreciating based on business position or fundamentals there's something else happening
1: i suppose it's, it's just a real test of it, it doesn't make our job necessarily harder you know we, we find good companies and we invest in them but i suppose it makes our our temperament and our patience a little a uh, little more worn when you're seeing your yeah. stock rocket up and your your finger might be getting a bit itchy
3: yeah, it's knowing what to do. Um, like if you'd have bought shares in AMC for two dollars when it's sitting at five dollars, you're looking at for some very serious gains. And yeah. it feels like I should sell. Today it's sitting at I don't know what's sitting at between it's forty. Over and 50 thirty
1: dollars at the moment,
3: anyway, I think it will probably change by <laughs> Friday again. Yeah. Well change by Friday, but th- that's the very that's the very effect we're looking at with Clover right now, that anyone who bought shares prior to two days ago is very much in the green today. And um it's it's quite difficult to issue guidance and you know with that backdrop because the very forces
1: pushing it up are not inside our measurable control yeah i actually just checked their amc is over 55 dollars, (laughs) so i was even way out there (laughs) let's move on then Um, and one of the companies that is in our shortlist is etsy and it's made some big moves recently to get down with the kids by buying the british-based fashion app depop for $1.6 billion. Depop was founded 10 years ago and is well-known this side of the Atlantic anyway as the go-to site to sell second-hand clothes. The appeal for Etsy in this deal is obvious, for not only does Depop operate along the same lines as Etsy in terms of branding and business models and social values, but over 90% of Depop's users are under the age of 26, which is an incredible addressable market. Mike, I know you've been looking closely at this deal. What are your first thoughts on it?
2: Yeah, I love it. Etsy paid a pretty premium for it at about 23 times sales, but I think it's a great entry point into a notoriously hard demographic to engage. Yeah, And I think Etsy are doing the right thing as well by keeping Depop as its own standalone marketplace. Um, it's growing at a 100% a year, both revenue and gross merchandise value. Uh, it's the 10th most popular site among all teens in the US. A third of 16 to 24 olds in the UK have the app. It's Riding two trends as well, because obviously you have the engagement of Gen Z, but also the move away from fast fashion and kind of more sustainable practices in that industry is a really important one going forward too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And marie what are your thoughts on it? I know you've been looking into it too.
0: Yeah, I've been kind of, um, in general, been looking at secondhand sellers and vintage online sellers um, to try and find a stock to add to actually my Wall Street. It's been kind of a segment that both me and Rory are really interested in. And so I've been kind of looking at all of depop's competitors because depop was private um prior to this but you know there's companies like the real real and ThreadUp, mm. and Farfetch, and poshmark which are all public companies and the one kind of most comparable to depop is poshmark they both are kind of targeting that kind of middle of the road low to you know medium-sized kind of order i think poshmark's like average order worth is like 33 dollars. so you know you're you're buying kind of not quite premium brands. You're buying kind yeah. of middle of the road brands like Urban Outfitters and Levi's and stuff like that. And something I found really impressive is I kind of did a little bit of a comparison between Depop and Poshmark to kind of see how good of a deal is um, Etsy buying Depop. Like, why? You know, I was interested to see, oh, why didn't Etsy consider going after Poshmark? And really, the difference is kind of the growth story going forward. I think Poshmark is more targeted towards millennials and. They have seen their revenue growth and their user growth slow considerably kind of over the last three to four quarters. And I think when you compare it to Depop, it's quite significant to see the growth that Depop has been able to do over the last four quarters. And it's a much smaller company. And to see it kind of really operating in a space with 90% of their users are under 26. Like how much money yeah. do people under the age of 26 have? And yet they are still, they still have this considerable growth. I think that's very impressive. Um, and it's something that really excites me. And Depop actually addresses one of my main concerns that I had with Poshmark, which often sellers on Poshmark get frustrated because they have a 20% take of anything that you sell on it. Mm. And if you sell something for under $15, they take uh, a $3 fee But the issue with that is is that Poshmark is selling a lot of things for under $15. And so when you add shipping into it, sometimes sellers on Poshmark don't make any money. They actually lose money selling on the platform, whereas Depop only has a 10% take rate. And I think that difference is going to push more and more sellers onto Depop and away from Poshmark. So I really think it's a smart acquisition by Etsy. I think it's a great way to kind of diversify their customer base. And I can see it being really a great growth potential for them for the next 10 years.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I, I I wasn't familiar with Poshmark at all. That's a very interesting uh, perspective. Emmett, you weren't here on the last episode, but we talked a lot about kind of mergers and acquisitions then and how they are typically very, very bad for shareholder value. As part of this deal, Etsy has said, as Mike mentioned already, that they're going to continue to operate Depop independently as you know, kind of its own company under the Etsy um, umbrella. How important do you think this is for the success of the deal?
3: I think so. You're right. Growing through acquisition is one of the many routes that a business can uh, kind of broaden its reach, increase its revenues. And there's been so many papers and MBA papers written on the subject. It's unbelievable. But one of the things that a business can do that can most damage the efficiencies is try to introduce a single solution for all businesses. So we have one, you know, finance department and we've one kind of uh, internal messaging system or whatever. And in turn, it slowly erodes the culture and the advantages that the acquired business has. But this Etsy um, has a track history of acquisition. It's made seven other deals, each of which was worth uh, less than a billion dollars. So this is by far their biggest acquisition, but they've learned how to grow, through acquisition and how to do it their own particular way without ruining what's special about Etsy. So, I think um that the Depop acquisition is a is a good fit and I like that they're doing it because they have learned how to do it effectively.
1: Yeah, that's that's an important point. The track record of a company in previous acquisitions can often tell you a lot. I I think of Rory often uses the example of PayPal that they buy these companies and then just let them do their thing and, you know, take the money and, and take the share price appreciation along with it.
2: I was just going to say as well that the week after Etsy announced the acquisition, they also announced that they're going to raise another billion in cash in convertible notes. So it just shows how easy it is for these kind of companies to get cash right now as well. Yeah. Why wouldn't Why wouldn't you go out making acquisitions?
1: Yeah, and I believe that acquisition was mostly in cash as well. So it was. It, it's good to see them growing like that. Let's move on then to a company that definitely isn't too good at acquisitions based on their Vine acquisition a few years ago, Twitter. So after years and years of people saying, I can't believe this site is free, Twitter has finally copped on and launched its first ever subscription service, inventively named Twitter Blue. This subscription service offers, and I quote, an enhanced and complementary features to the already existing Twitter experience for those who want it. So the features that will come along with this subscription include a bookmark folder where you can organize the tweets you've saved, the ability to undo a tweet within 30 seconds of posting it, and a reader mode. That that makes it easier to read long Twitter threads. Um, it, this Twitter Blue will only be launched in Australia and Canada to begin with. And the cost ranges between $3.49 and $4.49 a month. Emmett, as probably the most active Twitter user here, um, I want to come to you first. Would any of those features tempt you to cough up three or four books a month for Twitter premium or subscription?
3: No, I think for me the supreme feature that's still lacking is the ability to correct typos. Yeah. Um I'm now whatever on the back uh, half of my forties, so sometimes my eyes are a little blurred and I'm when <laughs> I reread it later, like I can't believe I wrote that. Um autocorrect got me. So I would like the ability to edit tweets, correct typos, but I can understand the um the risk of doing such thing because you might find that you can you change the meaning entirely and somebody has liked something already and yeah. you've changed its meaning and it somewhat has an impact or could very
1: much have an impact on what David. but would you pay three or four dollars for the liberty um, of editing your type your tweets
3: no not no. really i'll just delete it if, if it's so bad so yeah i i was underwhelmed by twitter blue but i mean really my opinion doesn't really matter we're gonna have to see what the market says and if we see this launched in the u.s you know twitter has been under pressure to you know monetize its base in new ways and this is this is clearly a way of, of doing that i i thought the bookmarking the reader mode i don't know they just seemed to me to be fairly banal uh, yeah. changes and tweaks i don't know what what do you think yourself
1: yeah no i, I was i was pretty underwhelmed with the whole thing as well and it, it forms part. so you know earlier this year twitter twitter famously set itself some hard targets to reach so 315 million monetizable daily active users by the end of 2023 and to double its annual revenue to 7.5 billion by the end of that year too um and i think this is kind of the first effort in subscription but yeah it was fairly kind of pathetic i thought to to be to be brutally honest um you know giving people the ability to read tweets and a number of tweets in one go and, and to undo a tweet after 30 seconds um anne what do you think about this? So currently, Twitter derives over 85% of its revenue from advertisements. So obviously, they're hoping to to kind of balance the scales a little bit and start to bring in some subscription revenue. Do you think this will give them the boost they need?
0: No, I don't think so. But it's, it's also um, not really the kind of monetization that I was looking for a couple months ago when they started making announcements of changes. I think Twitter has always had such a difficult relationship in terms of adding in new features. I think they're very hesitant. And I think part of the reason for that is um, I think they don't want to ruin the product that they have. I think some of the strength of Twitter is the simplicity. I think the products that I would be more interested in and could see having better growth potential would be Twitter Spaces and then the paid newsletter feature. That they are hoping to introduce, I think that has much more potential. Um, and I also think something I, when we talk about monetizing users, I don't think that Twitter should really be focused on monetizing all users. In my opinion, I think Twitter should be focused on monetizing users that have huge followings on the platform. Yeah. Because particularly for people like like celebrities or you know political figures stuff like that, they can have millions and millions of followers, and they essentially use that often is like a direct to consumer sales channel, particularly in the case of celebrities and Twitter really gains nothing from, from that at all. And so I think it would be more useful if they brought out a subscription service for people that had over a million followers and that they got additional features in terms of analytics or something like that. And then they were paying a subscription towards that, that might be tiered along the number of users that someone acquires. I think that would be more sustainable. So i d- i mean i don't i don't know if twitter blue will even last i think it might go a little bit like twitter fleets which was released at the end of 2020 which was yeah. like their 24-hour version of a tweet somewhere to a snapchat or an instagram story and it just it, it wasn't as successful and people really didn't like it and it's kind of just disappeared
1: so yeah. yeah it disappeared like the tweets were supposed to um yeah mike what do you think With your with your dozens of twitter followers do you think you'd be <laughs> shelling out three or four books a month to engage them better
2: yeah, uh, no, I think I just buy followers from uh, bot farms out in Eastern Europe. I think I think Twitter, Twitter solution is easy. They just do a blue tick auction for all the wannabe influencers like Emmett and Rory. Get them verified, pay six figures for that little blue tick, the verification, you'll be buzzing.
1: There you go. Get Jack on the phone. <laughs> Michael sorted it. <laughs> so let's move on and take a quick check in to see what's going on on my wall street at the moment. So we've just published our brand new stock of the month pick earlier this week, a video game publisher that has been responsible for some of the most iconic games of the past two decades. If you prefer to listen to your stock analysis, though, make sure to check out the stock of the month podcast that'll be published in the my wall street app next Monday, June 14th. You won't find it anywhere else. So if you want to listen in, just follow the link in the notes for today's show and start your free trial. And if that wasn't enough podcasts for you, we've also launched our brand new educational podcast, Get Started The Beginner's Guide to the Stock Market. This is a five-part series designed to give would-be investors all the information they need to just get started. Based on lessons from my Wall Street's Learn app, Get Started covers everything from why long-term investing has been proven time and time again to be the best wealth creation strategy to the things we look for in finding great companies. If you want to listen into this, just click on the link in the notes for today's show or simply Google my Wall Street Get Started podcast to find it. Let's move on then to Jargon Buster. So we have two questions today, Emmett. I'm going to throw both of them over to you as punishment for skipping last week's podcast. <laughs> the first one comes in from Matthew. Um, he asked about over-diversification in his portfolio. So I suppose what are we always talk about the importance of diversification. What are the dangers of being too overly diversified? And how can you tell if your portfolio is over-diversified?
3: Mm. Well, I think that danger lies in under diversification, principally, which is also known as concentration, which which means you only own a few stocks. And the more stocks you own, the lower the risk of any single investment significantly hurting your net worth if it hits the rocks for any reason whatsoever. Yeah. Um. So strictly speaking, there's reduced danger from over diversification Um, but you know the more you diversify the more you add stocks to your list of holdings the closer it starts to mimic a fund so the S&P 500 is a ball of 500 businesses and if you have a portfolio with many dozens or even hundreds of stocks in it well I think it's probably worth reconsidering your approach and your strategy because what we're really trying to do by concentrating our energy and our dollars in just a couple of dozen investments is to beat the S&P 500. So to Matthew's question, I think the risk of over-diversification, I think there's two sides to the risk. One is that you won't have the energy or the memory or the interest to keep track of all those stocks that you bought. I mean, if you're an individual investor and you have 60 stocks, for example, it's very difficult for the average woman or man yeah. industry to keep a track of 60 stories. So that's one of the risks. The second is that you will have bland returns. Um, and actually, even the word bland is probably a little harsh. You'll, have, you'll probably uh, reduce your ability to have blowout returns, but you could have very good returns. You know, if you were to have a compounded growth rate of 10% with a highly diversified portfolio, you might slightly underperform the S&P 500, but you'll double your money every something like 7.2 years. So, you know, but the the real risk is that when you buy too many stocks, I think you will hit a point where you can't recall
1: why you bought shares yeah. in ABC Corp. And you mentioned there about, you know, if you have loads of dozens and dozens of stock that eventually you know it kind of starts to mimic an index what would you say to somebody who invests in a couple of stocks but also invests in like etfs for example vu which tracks the s&p 500 do you need to worry about having you know um for example um a, a stock that's in the etf and also being invested in that that stock individually is that a concern you should worry about or is that kind of over over egging it a bit
3: yeah, I think it's over-egging it. I don't think you need to concern yourself. I do love that approach that you described. So somebody starts their investing life and in the bedrock of their portfolio, they buy a couple of, you know, um, really high grade ETFs, whether it's the S&P 500 or v as you say, or some thematic ETF, whether it's cybersecurity or whatever. And then they start to learn individual stocks that they have a particular interest or skill, um, you know, in analyzing. And they're trying to basically find alpha and they're trying to basically outperform the average returns, which will be represented in the bedrock of their portfolio. So they're trying to add an edge and improve their overall returns. So I think it's a nice approach. And I do not think that if, for example, you have shares in the S&P 500, that there are suddenly 500 companies you should not invest in, not at all.
1: yeah. Absolutely. Okay, thanks for that. Second question comes in from a longtime podcast listener, Stephen, and he asked what we thought about Nintendo as a stock pick. Nintendo is a company that we've we've thrown around a lot in here. I know in our kind of meetings talk about stocks and stuff. Why haven't we added it to the showroom yet?
3: Nintendo. Firstly, I like Nintendo. I think it's it's a great business and it's been around uh, for a very long time. And its wheelhouse of characters exists in virtually everybody's consciousness. In fact, on that subject, I'm going to tell you their top few characters. So, in stack stack ranked, their biggest character, their best known character is Mario from Donkey Kong, and he was introduced to the world in 1981. Their second is a character called Link from The Legend of Zelda. I'd never even heard of Link. (laughs) Um, So I don't know if it's a he or she, but Link was introduced to the world in 1987. Uh, Then there's Samas Aran from Metroid. Never heard of the character of the game, and that was 1987. In ranked in fourth is Donkey Kong. And as far as I'm concerned, everybody knows Donkey Kong. And then in fifth place is Pikachu from the Pokemon series, which, well, it goes back a long time in Japanese um, pop culture, but was introduced into the gaming world in 1998. What,
1: what, cri- what criteria are these characters ranked against? Is it, is it social when, influence? When or- Emmett bought
3: the poster. so yeah it's when i bought the poster and also the value of their brand okay so the the they i don't know how they value these things but they i suppose awareness mind space occupancy that kind of stuff and the list continues like bowser for mario and kirby and luigi and all these kind of stuff so they have a load of characters and it's funny because the 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 acid value of characters is very hard to capture on a balance sheet. There is a method to do so. But what can't be captured is nostalgia. Yeah. And, you know, there are constantly waves of people my own age, younger and older, who actually have a huge nostalgic um, kind of feeling towards... A load of brands they participated and interacted with when they were small and are way richer now and are willing to do something uh, and pay for something now to tap back into that nostalgia. But anyway, look, Nintendo, to the very question, why isn't it in the My Wall Street app? Well, Nintendo uh, is today, it's a $74 billion business by market cap, which just for benchmarking sake is about the same size as uh, Activision, who are a games maker, uh, not quite the same. And they have... Uh, I'm looking at their share price. They are pretty much today for the first time at the same level uh, share price wise, uh, as they were in October two thousand and seven, so it fell into a crater from a crater from two thousand and seven, where it sat for years and years and years. And ha- I guess with the coronavirus tailwind, sold a whole load of games consoles machines, and its share prices up, and it is today, as I said, a seventy four billion dollar business. Now the reason it's not in my Wall Street app is it is it's it's a Japanese company that lists on the U S exchange with a mechanism known as an ADR, American yeah. Depository Receipt. And you, you can recognize an ADR uh, quite quickly if a ticker symbol ends in the letter Y. Um, and what this Y does, it identifies American Depository Receipt. And, you know, when you buy or sell an ADR, an investor is buying a US, uh, equi- an equity in the U.S. market system, it will clear in U.S. dollars. But the Y kind of indicates that these are very often over-the-counter markets. Now, uh, what I'm getting at is that you're not getting a clean and green traditional American business that does the majority of its revenue in US dollars when you buy an ADR. And as a secondary consequence, an awful lot of uh, brokers make it a little more difficult to buy um, an ADR stock. So for that reason, well, actually, I don't want to speak on behalf of Rory, but that is a reason why mm. it might not be in the my Wall Street app. I think... Um, what's happened with nintendo as a business is that it it's been accused rightly or wrongly of not innovating uh, yeah. a lot in the last few years and it, there is a rumor out there that it's going to launch a new switch console yeah. console this autumn um, there's a whole lot of reports online about what it might be, you know, 4K and OLED and all this kind of stuff. But it just sounds like the latest and greatest version of uh what was a big mega hit for them. They said that they were halfway through the sales cycle of the last switch, so it feels like it's time to announce a new console. And I think all the others are doing it too. Um it expects as in when I say all the others, I mean Sony and Xbox, they they've all released new consoles. Um the 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 business expects revenue to decline. Around nine percent for the full year this year, um, and earnings to drop something like twenty nine percent. So that is not a exciting outlook, especially when there's this theme of reopening plays where yeah. people are now investing in businesses that will, you know, capitalize on people being out and about on the streets again. Uh, I think Nintendo is a brand and a business. That has been around for most of our lives and I think it will continue to be around for most of our lives and I think it will innovate uh, moderately across the years. It will have new characters that in Stock Club in 20 years from now we're going to list the next 20 most valuable Nintendo brands and I wouldn't be so sure if those uh, that I just <laughs> read out will still be on the list. But I think it's going to keep creating new legions of nostalgic fans yeah. I mean, and sadly in my house here I have two young men who in 20 years will feel nostalgic about Nintendo
1: yeah absolutely it's really one of those iconic companies um, I remember like my first Game Boy and knowing what Nintendo was before I had any con- comprehension of of businesses I suppose um, I remember we, we got a lot of requests in around I think it was around the summer of 2017 when Pokemon Go got really big and people looking to invest in Nintendo not realising that it watched Pokemon Go isn't actually owned by Nintendo it's owned by Niantic um, but yeah definitely an iconic company let's move on then to our elevator pitches to finish out the show so Emmett you in in and of yourself just done an elevator pitch there so I'm going to ask Anne-Marie and Mike to give me elevator pitches this week um, Anne-Marie I'm going to go with you first I believe you've picked a company to pitch us that you actually already wrote extensively about in my Wall Street app earlier this week
0: Yeah, so I'm going to pitch Vimeo, which I did a first look on on Tuesday. Yeah. So we're not going to give too much away simply because, you know, we want people to go and read all of my hard work. Um, (laughs) But I should maybe preface this pitch by saying, um, in general... On video, I'm quite bullish. I think video is the future of the internet. I think if we take a look at TikTok, which I think sometimes gets categorized as a social media, I think it, it has a social media element, but I don't think it's a social media company. I think it's a, it's a video based kind of entertainment platform. Yeah. And it's certainly proving that it that video is better at holding your attention and leads to better retention than anything based in words or images like Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Um, that being said, because video is kind of exploding on the internet, I think it really does mean that businesses of all kinds, not just media companies need to be considering their video strategy and need to probably be investing in their video and kind of what they put out on the internet and what they provide on their website and that type of thing. So when I saw Vimeo and basically saw Vimeo as, as a way to help businesses, particularly small and medium sized businesses, accelerate their video production and kind of be able to do it on their own, I was really, really excited. Yeah. So... Just real quick, Vimeo to most people is probably known as like the indie YouTube. And that is really how it existed until about 2016. And it was controlled by IAC, which some people might be familiar with. They're a holder group and they previously controlled things like Match Group and TripAdvisor and yeah. Ticketmaster. They've had considerable success with buying companies and helping manage them and then they spin them off. Um, basically in 2016, Vimeo had this realization that we're entering an economy where more and more companies are going to be creating streaming content online and we're not going to survive. So they decided to pivot and they basically took all of these creator tools that they had on their website to help small filmmakers and they decided to adapt them and make them as easy to use as possible and try to become the video equivalent of Squarespace or Wix where basically a business of any kind could go onto the platform and create any type of video from like an Instagram advertisement to an HR training video to like high quality website content. And Vimeo has actually done really well since they've Uh, basically done that pivot. They made themselves into a SaaS company, which we all love to see. Yep. And over the last 18 months, their growth has been really, really impressive. Just a few kind of numbers. They now have a gross margin of 70%. In their last quarter, they generated $89 million in revenue, which is a 57% increase year over year. And even better, their total subscribers grew by 25% and their average revenue per user increased by 27%. So they're clearly doing something right. They have a number of enterprise customers, such as uh, Comcast and the New York Times, which are expanding um, their Vimeo subscriptions. And it's definitely something that excites me. As of right now, it only just spun out in April of 2021. So we'll be waiting six months so we can see a couple more quarterly reports but I think if its growth continues, it might just justify its rather lofty valuation right now of 22 times sales.
1: Yeah, very, very interesting company. There was so much reading, reading your, your first look there the other day, like there was so much about Vimeo I had no idea about. And it's such a, there's such more breadth, I suppose, to the business than one might imagine as, as opposed to the indie YouTube, which I, I quite like that coining. You often hear like the Netflix of something, the indie YouTube is a nice one. Mike, what company are you pitching us?
2: Uh, I'm pitching Globally. Okay. It allows e-commerce merchants to provide a localized customer experience across the globe through services like local messaging, pricing, currency transfers, payment methods, custom duties and taxes, shipping options and returns. And it said its mission is to make the global e-commerce border agnostic. So if you're a merchant selling in England, you could immediately sign up to Globally, start setting up a merchant page in France, and they'll kind of... Take away all your headaches, basically, of selling yeah. internationally. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a lot to like here. I think it's riding this kind of anti-Amazon train of, I would rather shop at not Amazon, basically. <laughs> 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 um, supporting smaller b- businesses and entrepreneurialism. It's up around 50% since its IPO last month. Revenue uh, revenues grown at 134%. Gross merchandise value at 133%. And it's also significantly improving its margin profile in the last year. And maybe the most interesting part about it is that Shopify acquired a 6.5% stake in the build-up to its IPO. Yeah. And it's signed a deal to make globally the exclusive provider of cross-border services for Shopify's customers.
1: Wow. That, yeah. That's a pretty attractive proposition. Absolutely.
2: So definitely want to keep on the watch list.
1: And they, are they re- have they recently IPO'd?
2: Yes, so they IPO'd there about a month ago.
1: Okay, interesting. So we've got the indie YouTube and anti Amazon. we're pretty good for our, our little uh, catchphrases this week so that is about it from this week's stock club don't forget about all the great new stuff in my wall street at the moment if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain in the next episode make sure to get in touch you can find us as always on twitter that's at my wall street hq or email us at pod at my that's pod at my don't forget to subscribe to stock club as well and if you're enjoying the podcast please leave a review for us on whatever platform you listen to us on that's it from us here today we'll talk to you in two weeks happy investing mm-hmm.